Today's broadcast originally aired on November 16th, 2023. You know, I'm the guy that chartered the jet to go down to Coffee County. Okay, all right, Scott Hall. We know you're the guy who chartered the jet to go down to Coffee County. Thank you for pleading guilty. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. We're beyond you, dude. I got the feeling that something right. Moving on. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Sort of. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and a whole bunch of other affiliates that I do not have time to name. Because today, we're talking about Georgia. And you know, that takes some time around here. Welcome to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Well, as, as noted, we've got a lot of news out of what is uh, apparently Desi Doyen, my favorite uh battle presidential battleground state <laughs> well uh, it is kind of it, it important seems, seems to be yes is it has proven to be important hasn't it yeah i'll say that would be of course the great presidential battleground state of georgia but no it is not in regard to the criminal case against donald trump and friends for trying to steal the 2020 election there well actually we've got some news on that as well on that case as well today Uh, But we will get to that later because this is the case that the Bradcast and Bradblog.com has been covering for so many years. The case known as Curling v. Raffensperger. That case is finally coming to trial just after the start of the 2024 election year. It is the case featuring plaintiffs from the Good Government and Fair Elections nonprofit group, Coalition for Good Governance that has challenged the state of Georgia and their secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger's use of insecure, unverifiable touchscreen ballot marking device voting systems. It's a case that was originally filed way back in 2017. It is the case that not only resulted in the banning of the use of the state's then 15-year-old touchscreen voting systems made by a now-defunct company named Diebold Election Systems, Inc., but now challenges the use of its replacement, similarly unverifiable and insecure touchscreen voting systems made by Dominion. As chosen, hand-selected by Brad Raffensperger against the advice of voting systems and cybersecurity experts, chosen for use in 2019 and forced on every voter at every polling place in the state, in the critical battleground state. The case has also spawned a landmark expert report that identified vulnerabilities in the election systems used in Georgia that led to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, known as CISA, to issue an advisory to all jurisdictions around the nation that use the same equipment to immediately apply security patches produced by Dominion to mitigate at least some of the system's insecurities. Secretary Raffensperger's office, however, stunned 
the federal courts some months ago when they announced that they would not be updating the state's tens of thousands of voting systems with those federally approved and recommended security patches until after the 2024 presidential election in the critical swing state. All of this has even prompted some Georgia Republicans to call for abandoning the machines entirely, though U.S. District Court Judge Amy Totenberg took pains to note in her recent ruling in the case, the case which was filed long before Donald Trump decided to pretend that the 2020 election was stolen from him, that the evidence in this case, quote, does not suggest that the plaintiffs are conspiracy theorists of any variety. Indeed, she writes, some of the nation's leading cybersecurity experts and computer scientists have provided testimony and affidavits on behalf of plaintiff's case in the long course of this litigation, she writes. With that in mind, Curling v. Raffensperger is also the case that ended up revealing the now infamous statewide voting system software breach by a team of Donald Trump MAGA diehards paid by then-Trump attorney Sidney Powell in Coffee County, Georgia, a case that most listeners likely first heard about on this program after we were the first to air on this show what amounted to a confession of the breach to uh, in a phone call to Coalition for Good Governance founder Marilyn Marks by an Atlanta bail bondsman named Scott Hall. That revelation resulted in the indictments of Powell and Hall. Then Coffee County election director Misty Hampton was also indicted and former Coffee County GOP chair turned fake 2020 elector Kathy Latham all indicted in racket, uh, for racketeering conspiracy charges with Donald Trump, as filed by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. You may have heard about that case. It's the one in which Powell and Hall have now pleaded guilty and are said to be cooperating with prosecutors as Trump, Hampton, Latham uh, all maintain their innocence, along with about a dozen other co-conspirator defendants who are alleged to have tried to steal the 2020 presidential election in Georgia for Donald Trump. But the main case, the case that started it all, Curling v. Raffensperger, challenging the use of Georgia's touchscreen ballot marking device voting systems, is finally coming to trial in federal court with Judge Amy Totenberg last week issuing a 135-page ruling denying the state's attempt to have the case dismissed entirely on summary judgment and ordering the trial to begin on January 9th. It will be a bench trial with no jury, meaning Judge Totenberg, the one who has been presiding over all of this case's many twists and turns, and I really only touched on a few of them for so many years, she will hear the case and she will rule on its ultimate outcome as plaintiffs challenge the constitutionality of the Georgia touchscreen voting systems under the plaintiff's First and Fourteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The curling plaintiffs, specifically the Coalition for Good Governance, has long been seeking a remedy that would result in the use of verifiable, hand-marked paper ballots in Georgia polling places, akin to the hand-marked paper absentee ballot vote-by-mail system that's already being used across the entire state by a huge number of state voters. That is a seemingly reasonable ask, it seems to me, and one that should not be difficult 
as the coalition has ordered, given that Georgia already has the paper ballot optical scan equipment that would be needed for such a move. In Judge Totenberg's conclusion to her 135-page order, setting a trial for January 9, 2024, she emphasized, quote, the importance of the security, reliability, and functionality of state election systems classified by the U.S. Homeland Security Department as critical national infrastructure cannot be overstated in a world where cybersecurity challenges have exponentially increased in the last decade. The dynamics of how a breach in one part of a cyber system may potentially carry cybersecurity reverberations for the entire system for years to come exemplifies the important concerns raised in this case. I think she gets it. That was the judge, Judge Amy Totenberg, who will be overseeing this case. Now, what she will or can do about any of it, however, that is another matter. Let's see what our guest thinks about that. Joining us once again today is our old friend and broadcast secret weapon, actually America's secret weapon, if you want me to be honest here. Marilyn Marks is a longtime election integrity expert and a troublemaker and muckraker after my own heart. She's also the executive director of the nonpartisan nonprofit Coalition for Good Governance and just may save the world before all is said and done, but no pressure. Welcome back to the broadcast, <laughs> Marilyn Marks. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. That was some serious pressure you just put on. Uh, I know. We're not asking much. <laughs> just save the world, please. If anyone could do it, it would be you. So, listen, I, I know you wrote about some of this yourself at bradblog.com in a uh, in a guest blog recently, but I want to sort of step through a few points from Judge Totenberg's order last week, and I want to get your reaction to them, if that's okay. Of course. This is uh, from uh, her ruling, uh, early in the ruling, page four or so. She says, quote, To be clear from the start, the court does not have the legal authority to grant the broadest relief that plaintiffs request in this case without directly infringing on the state's legislation legislature's vested power to enact legislation. Even if plaintiffs prevail on their claims, the court cannot order the Georgia legislature to pass legislation, creating a paper ballot voting system, or judicially impose a paper ballot system as relief in this case. Quite simply, the court has the legal authority to identify constitutional deficiencies with the existing voting system, but it does not have the power to prescribe or mandate new voting systems, i.e. a paper ballot system, to replace the current legislative, legislatively enacted system. Okay, so if I'm understanding that correctly, she can find the system to be unconstitutional, but cannot order a remedy to use uh, to, to to the use of the unconstitutional voting system. So, Brad, um, we've never asked for her to order handmarked paper ballots. That ultimately be just becomes the default mm -hmm. because the state law already says if the electronic system mm -hmm. is not working handmarked paper ballots is what you go to. That's what the law says, ah. is, is the default. And it, it, it's not like they get the choice to go to internet voting mm -hmm. or voting by voice or something. So we've never asked her to say, Your Honor, you must have them uh, use handmarked paper ballots. Mm -hmm. She's exactly right that she has the power to enjoin 
unconstitutional behavior. And that's what we are asking her to do. And so is that similar when she barred essentially the state, uh, the state's old Diebold touchscreens? Exactly. So she she barred that system and then leaves it up to the state to what to do next. Right, except the the law is already built into the the state law that says here's what you do next. Mm. You go to handmark paper ballots. Okay. As I say, it doesn't say you get to choose to go to internet voting or something like that if the system doesn't work. And so we were actually on the phone in a conference with the judge and mm-hmm. the state defendant yesterday. And the point that you just made so very well is exactly what um, our attorneys were repeating for both the court and the, the defendants. And that is, you did this, Your Honor, in... 2019 mm-hmm. by declaring the Debol system unconstitutional. We're looking for exactly the same thing. And she certainly didn't tell them, oh, then you've got to go but get a handmarked paper ballot system. We wish she had, don't mm. we, Brad? Yes. Don't we? yes. You know, in fact, she tried to warn them that, you know, that please don't be back here shortly with more touchscreen problematic machines that's what she said back in, tw- yes, back in 2019 yeah. right but of course they completely defied her her admonition they completely defied the logic and have gotten themselves in all of this trouble by just being just embracing the touchscreen technology so yes the judge has the authority to declare something unconstitutional and then the state will go to into default of the system that they already have on the books. Now, she does offer a few other potential remedies that she calls uh, pragmatic, sound, remedial policy measures that could be ordered or agreed upon by the the parties. She lists a few of them here. Uh, One, providing for the use of printed ballots for vote counting without the use of QR codes. Now, I sort of have to explain that. These paper ballots that are printed out by the computer and sometimes checked by voters for accuracy, sometimes not. It doesn't matter if they actually check it because what they're checking is the human readable text, who you voted for or didn't. But the tabulator system, when those ballots are counted, doesn't even look at that text. It actually looks at these barcodes, these QR codes. So the judge here is suggesting, well, maybe they could do a, a, a version of the ballot that doesn't use QR codes, that only relies on the, uh, the human readable text. They could have uh, more election audits to address vote count accuracy and other related issues. And they could implement other essential cybersecurity measures and policies recommended by the nation's leading experts and firms, including the Department of Homeland Security's CISA. All right. So, yeah, that could happen. But if I'm understanding this, Marilyn Marks, none of those remedies would actually overcome the constitutional infirmity that I believe you are arguing that these systems would still remain unverifiable by the voting public and by the the public after an election is done. Am I, am I correct? You are absolutely right. No amount of software patching is going to fix this constitutional problem. And no amount of so-called auditing, which you and I and Philip Stark and, and the other people who follow this mm-hmm. know, is not a real audit. You can't do a real audit with those machine-printed ballots. So... No amount of fake auditing or software patches will fix the constitutional problem. And, and, and so that's it, it. In fact, Brad, it does more harm than good if you go out and spend scores of millions of dollars 
of doing these things that are going to be mostly feel-good efforts. Sure, the security patch should be done, but it doesn't take care of the fundamentals problem of the system. And I, you know, I know we've talked about it many times over the years on this show, Marilyn, but just very quickly for people who may just now be playing along for the first time, what, what's wrong with those uh, computer printed uh, uh, paper ballots? Uh, voters uh, look at them, they verify them after they <laughs> use them and before they're cast. What's wrong with them? Well, of course, anytime you are voting on a computer, voting on a touchscreen, you're voting on a hackable computer that can print out something, it can record a mm -hmm. different vote than what you press on the screen. And most of us mere human voters are just not, we just don't have the ability to have photographic memory to remember everything that was on the ballot, mm -hmm. what wasn't on the ballot, and did every vote end up being recorded as I intended to cast it, and, and then checking that before we go put it into the scanner. You know, as it, we're just not up for that as as human being voters. And and actually, as one of your own uh, experts in this case, Dr. Alex Halderman found in uh, one of his studies, I think it was uh, that on systems like this, that was it 80, 90 percent of voters, even when they did bother to check the printout, did not notice when the computer had flipped one of their their votes. I think it was like 90. In research, that yeah. is exactly right. Right. It wasn't in a real election, of mm -hmm. course, but in, right. in his research, it was something like six percent of the people were actually able to detect an error. <laughs> and, you know, how, how can we have this conversation without talking about Northampton, Pennsylvania, right? right? And I don't know if you saw Kevin Scoglin's fabulous work on that that was just released yesterday. Mm. But um, he noted that some of the polling places, even though the votes were flipping, and mm -hmm. you're aware of how these BMDs, a different manufacturer, yep. but the same unverifiable BMDs, were in fact misprogrammed for one, one portion of the election, flipping votes and it took an hour and a half, I think it was, into into the day of voting before some voters even realized wow. it. Because going back to your key point, voters don't really check this stuff very well. And, and let me underscore that, because I, did, I was going to ask about that. That was in Northampton County, Pennsylvania. It was the uh, November 7th off-year elections this year. The uh, BMDs were printing out, that's the computer-marked you know, ballot summary, were actually printing out selections for the voters in two different retention elections, statewide retention elections for judges. The paper, the computers were actually printing the opposite <laughs> of what the voters had tried to select on the touchscreen. I mean, that seems to be the nightmare scenario that you have worried about in, in, in Georgia, that you've warned about in Georgia, Marilyn. It does, does that real-world live election disaster scenario uh, that played out in Pennsylvania, does that affect your federal case in, in, uh, in the curling case in Georgia in January? Well, well, it is going to be a poster child for us. I hope in the courtroom we will be able, we hope we will be able to find a way to to make that alive for for the judge and for the public in the courtroom to understand this is exactly what we've been talking about. You can't recover from that, Brad. Yep. You cannot recover from nope. the fact when the when the ballot when the the printout that mm -hmm. the computer is printing is coming out different than what the voter is 
pressing on the screen, they quickly ran out of emergency paper ballots, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They had to go back to voting on the screen. And of course, the poll workers doing the best they could were giving all sorts of crazy instructions, including telling people, well, what you can do is you can vote the opposite of what you intend so that the mark will come out on the paper. <sighs> Except they weren't going to count the paper. They were going to count the electronic vote. There is no solution for that. And I got to tell you, Marilyn, I mean, all that has to, all you have to have in the 2024 presidential election in Georgia of all states, all you have to have is one precinct where something right. like that happens in the right. presidential race or any other. You will put the entire uh, election across uh, the presidential election across the entire country at risk, at question about whether it can be trusted. This is playing with fire in a way that I, I've tried to underscore over all of these years, but I don't think I am physically capable of uh, underscoring in the way it needs to be done. So let me go back specifically to your case and what the judge is recommending here. She's saying that the uh, Judge Hotenberg says that the court has been consistently advising the parties it, that it's in the public interest to, quote, seriously engage in the hard work of attempting to reach a consensual resolution regarding the voting systems that the state could implement and that the legislature could authorize funding for in the year ahead. That She's basically saying to make discussions, settlement uh, discussions for a compromise in this case. Are you open to such a, quote, reasonable, timely discussion and compromise here, Marilyn? And has the state Whoa. shown any proclivity to enter into such a conversation? The, the, the answers are a big, of course we are open. Has the state shown any interest to do anything other than what they are doing? Absolutely not. But, but we continue to try to engage with the state, um, have many times and, of course, we don't talk about settlement discussions in public, but I will just say that we are still hoping that this judge's order and going through all of the history that she did, the warnings that she did, the concerns she has, she was very candid about the secretary's inaction and um, really their lack of of seriousness about the security of the system. We are hoping that this will be a wake-up call for them and they will come talk to us, that they will decide that, yes, we have to do something different. But I fear that, in general, they really just want to put, as somebody told me yesterday, lipstick on this pig. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's fair to say... Uh they are not yet actually having those conversations with you about some sort of compromise? Well, you know, we've been at this thing for, for six years, so we constantly have conversations going yeah. on um, and, you know, always have. We, we exchange messages with, on one topic or another every single day. So um, I will just say that we're, we're not looking at anything uh, other than going to a trial right now in terms of being that's realistic. We'd love to see that change at any minute. The uh, defendants here, uh, Brad Raffensperger and the uh, Secretary of State's office, to be clear, these are the same folks 
who denied for uh, what I think was about a year and a half following the breach of the statewide voting system software in the rural Republican-controlled Coffee County, Georgia, that denied for about a year and a half that it even happened. Here mm-hmm. is here is the uh, the state's top voting system guy. One of my favorite clips of all time. This is Gabe's, <laughs> Gabe Sterling. Um, I think he's like the chief operations officer at the Secretary of State's office. In April of 2022, I believe, so more than a year after the now infamous breach uh, in, in Coffee County, here's Sterling at the Carter Center in Atlanta claiming that that breach, which happened a year earlier, which people, five people have now been indicted to have pleaded guilty for. This is him claiming that it never happened. We had claims, even recently, there was people saying, we went to Coffee County, we, we imaged everything. There's no evidence of any of that. It didn't happen. There is evidence of it. We, <laughs> we played it on this program. I think we were the first in the country to do so, of the guy who has just pled guilty, Scott Hall, claiming he did exactly that. Marilyn, does Judge Totenberg understand how the state has misled the public about that and about the uh, about the vulnerabilities of these systems, given their deceptive responses and their lack of attention paid to the Coffee County breach for so long? Uh, I think she does. And in this order, which is a 135-page order, as mm-hmm. you said, and we put out a press release yesterday on that, and and went through the details of how she has put it right there in black and white. The the state's really questionable conduct and the conflicting stories that the state has given. And she even talked about how Brad Raffensperger's statements were conflicting and uh, about what really happened and what he knew and what he didn't know. I just want to go back to your the tape you just played yeah. of Gabe Sterling. Yeah. That was a statement he made to the Carter Center in a speech on April the 29th. We have evidence that no later than April the 11th, he had communications, as did his attorneys, communications from the Washington Post, Emma Brown at the Washington Post saying, mm-hmm. look, I've talked to Misty Hampton. This breach happened. Here's, you know, here are the details. Mm-hmm. I want your comments. So he knew by that time that even one of the perpetrators was admitting that it had happened. This is in addition to Scott Hall. Mm-hmm. They had that information and went and told the public that it did not happen. And, and, and this is the office that is defending against your claims and is supposed to be taken seriously by this judge. And that's why I, I'm just hoping that, well, if you look at her 135-page uh, order on Friday, it does seem like she gets it. It does seem like she's paying very close attention to this case over all of these years and remembers yes, all is. of these things. Now, uh, Marilyn, we've got just a, a minute or two left here. Uh, Georgia, I, I believe, is the only state in the union to order this type of system, this type of unverifiable touchscreen system for use across the entire state. The, yes. The, the same or, or similar systems are, are used, the exact same systems or very similar ones are still used, however, in a bunch of states in various jurisdictions around the country. How would a, a a finding 
uh, a ruling by Judge Totenberg in your case that these systems violate the U.S. Constitution. That's a federal case. How could that potentially affect the use of these very same type of systems in so many other jurisdictions around the around the country, which also use these things, whether whether that happens, you know, in advance of 2024 or or even after this is a federal case. It's not a Georgia case. Correct. But of course, her um, her ruling in the type you mentioned would only be binding in Georgia. Mm-hmm. However, we would expect that a lot of jurisdictions would take quick notice because the last thing they want is a 2024 election to be considered unconstitutional in their jurisdiction. You know, it wouldn't really apply that they would need to change their voting system under her order, uh-huh. but by common sense, you would think they would start moving to do that, or they will see a copycat lawsuit done somewhere else. Well, I need to correct you at one point. I think the last thing those places would want is Marilyn Marks showing up and filing a lawsuit that she's going to stick with for six years at this point, seven years, I think. Can Takes I, persistence. Yes, that's they do not want that. It used to be we don't want 60 minutes to show up. Now it's we don't want Marilyn Marks to show up. Can a, can a, a remedy be put in place here, uh, If they whether it's the, the judge sort of uh, ultimately ordering one or the, the state uh, agrees to one? Can it can can a change be made? Can a remedy be put in place even uh, before the general elections next November? Much less, I think Georgia's primary is in March. Well, the the remedy is already built in. We in in Georgia there are emergency ballots, which are just handmarked paper ballots, mm-hmm. just look like a mail ballot that are required to be at every polling place now in case the machines go down and we can give example after example of you know there's something happens at every election where some polling place doesn't open up in time because of mm-hmm. a machine problem and the poll workers instantly give the emergency ballots to the voters they they mark them they put them in the scanner everything's fine everything is in place to do this Brad. We don't need any more equipment. We need a, like 90% less equipment, mm, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, there, we, we get cheaper ballots, less labor, less hackability, mm-hmm. less setup time. It's, you know, it, simplifying it is just beautiful. It's an incredibly easy to do. And there, you know, 70% of Americans vote this way. Yep. So this is not really that hard. Of course, the state pretends that it would take, you know, rocket science to make this happen. <laughs> so the, the remedy is simple. Print more emergency paper ballots. Exactly That's right. It. That'll right. do and it. Don't, and don't don't take truckloads of VMDs into the polling place. Yes. All right. Well, uh, Marilyn, how long is uh, it's going to start on uh, January 9, unless there's any uh, changes here? Uh, how long is the trial expected to run? And is Coalition for Good Governance... Uh, <laughs> Do you all have everything you need for this trial? <laughs> well, well, we could certainly use some funding okay. to take care of our attorneys who've got and experts who've got to yep. fly in to vote massive amounts of time. It's going to be a very expensive two to three week trial, two and a half to three week trial is yep. what the judge told us yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so we really, really need your listeners' support to help us out to to get us through the end of that trial. It's really important for not just Georgia, as you know, but as, you know, to democracy 
and it would really be a bad thing for us not to be able to to prove our case here. Yeah. So we would love the support at coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. And uh, yeah, Maryland uh, does not have the uh, same kind of funding flowing in that uh, now convicted <laughs> felon Sidney Powell got in order to <laughs> breach these systems. Uh, potential wit? Are you calling her as a witness in this case, Maryland? No, I don't believe okay. we'll be doing that. Okay. Scott Hall is he coming in? <laughs> I know. He hasn't he has not told us he wants to show up? I know he's got no. your number. I guess he hasn't called lately. <laughs> no, he has not called me lately. I doubt I'm. Dad, I'm going to be on his called list. Yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, Marilyn Marks is the executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance. As she noted, they can their work, their incredible work, can be found at coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. And you can fa uh, follow, and I really recommend you do, follow Marilyn on the site still known as Twitter, at Marilyn R. Marks, the number one. Uh, hope you have a, a delightful holiday season in preparing for this trial in January, and please do stay in touch. Thank you, Brad. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Marilyn. Okay. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, and I, I was just thinking about yeah. how she's been pursuing this since 2016, 2017. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. And yet still she persisted. And yet still she persisted. Yep. And she still does. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, of course, I know I'm always very nice to her on the show. That's just because I don't want her coming after me <laughs> at this point. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break here. We might as well uh, stick with Georgia today, I think, since we've we've got several news items from that other case that you may actually have heard more about, not on this show necessarily, but elsewhere, the other case in the state, the one out of Fulton County, where Donald Trump and co-defendants are facing, yes, criminal indictments. We got some news there, that news, and Desi Doyen's latest always cheerful Green News <laughs> report are all still ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. You're listening to an encore presentation of the broadcast. Oh, Georgia. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We ought to just move down to Atlanta, Desi Doyen. Why don't we just... <laughs> you can do it. Uh, anyway, uh, earlier in the week, we played some audio from videos that were leaked to the media out of Fulton County, Georgia, of interviews between prosecutors and the four defendants to date who have eventually, who have, uh, who ultimately pleaded guilty in Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's broad criminal conspiracy indictment against Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants for their alleged alleged attempt to steal the 2020 election in the Peach State. The content of those uh, videos was interesting and at times revealing. 
And they included Trump attorneys Jenna Ellis, Ken Chesbro, and Sidney Powell, along with the Atlanta bail bondsman Scott Hall, who, with Powell, was indicted in relation to the breach and copy and distribution of the state's sensitive statewide voting system software in Coffee County, Georgia. So the tapes were discovery material available, made available. Uh, of course, the prosecutors had them, but made available to all of the defendants in the broad RICO indictment. So the question was who leaked those videos to two different news sources. Both ABC News and Washington Post were given what appear to be selectively leaked portions of the interviews between the defendants and prosecutors. Uh, now, those interviews were about three hours each in total, and apparently neither of the news outlets had all three hours. So but they were given selectively edited. Correct. And the stuff that was selectively edited and leaked, as I argued when we shared it, arguably was selected to help make Donald Trump either look better or cast blame on others for what he did or otherwise sort of lay out his likely defense in the case. You know, oh, Sidney Powell told me she had evidence of fraud in the voting systems in Georgia and she still believes it today. And she says over and over that I believed it way back then. So you can't really hold me to account for acting on what I really, really thought was election fraud, right? Or, uh, oh, sure, Jenna Ellis says someone told her I was not planning to leave the White House, no matter what the facts were about my election challenges. But, but I did leave the White House, so obviously I did nothing wrong, and you can't rely on testimony about anything from that Jenna Ellis, etc. And, and, oh, by the way, anyone else who is considering flipping against me See how we will target you by showing the world whatever it is that you tell prosecutors? So all of that came to pass this uh, past week as Fonnie Willis, way back in September, had asked the judge in the case to impose a protective order barring defendants from publicly sharing discovery information. But the judge in the case... Fulton County Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee had not yet ruled on that September motion when those videos were leaked to the media. And so Willis immediately went back to court, asked the judge to do so now on an emergency basis and require defendants to come into the prosecutor's office if they wanted to view such material without you know, making it available to them to be able to be leaked to the public. McAfee held a hearing on that motion, that emergency motion, on Wednesday, and one of the defendants, uh, one of their attorneys, confessed to the judge that he had leaked the videos to one media outlet. As AP reports today, a lawyer for a former elections director charged alongside Donald Trump and others over the efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election said Wednesday that he released the videos of prosecutor interviews with some of their co-defendants because he thought they helped his client and the public had a right to see them. Jonathan Miller, an attorney for Misty Hampton. She is the then election director of Coffee County, Georgia, who allowed Sidney Powell's gang of 
uh, election conspiracists and so-called data experts to come into the office and open the voting machines and make copies of all the most sensitive voting system software in the state and distribute it out to the world where it remains in the wild today in advance of the 2024 elections. Lord knows what mischief can or will be done with it in next year's elections. Her attorney, Jonathan Miller, made the comments essentially confessing to releasing the videos at the hearing requested by Fulton County prosecutors on Wednesday. Here is some of that audio, including the confession from Miller via a Zoom video call that he was on and some remarks from Judge McAfee. But Judge, in in being transparent with the court and to make sure that uh, nobody else gets blamed for what happened uh, and so that I can go to sleep well tonight, uh, Judge, I, I did release those videos to one outlet. And, and on all candor to the court, I need the court to know that. Well, I appreciate that, candor, Mr. Miller. Is there anything else, though, you'd want to add in terms of, I, I, I suppose I would lodge it as an objection to the protective order, but not a, a vigorous one, I suppose. Uh, is there anything else you'd want to add, though, you're thinking behind why you felt these proffers needed to be part of the public record? Because it feels like that should be part of the uh, analysis that I have to do of justifying a protective order. If, if the court will entertain me, Judge, all four of those people that did their proffers, they stood in front of you. They did their plea. It was all recorded. It was sent out there for the world to see. And to put those proffers, hide those proffers that show all the underlying things that went into those pleas, it misleads the public about what's going on. Okay, so I don't know that it misleads the public. I don't know that any of those proffer videos, those uh, interviews with prosecutors just prior to those uh, uh, defendants pleading guilty, I don't know that it misleads the public in any event. That information can come out during the trial when that eventually happens after it's been after the judge has, you know, determined that it is important to the particular case as opposed to a selective leak to the world. He says the public's right to know. It still doesn't supersede the need to prevent witness intimidation. And the other question that I have is, did Miller really do it? As opposed to, say, a Trump attorney for whom he was taking the fall? I mean, he sounds sincere, I guess, in in those remarks. But he also noted he only gave them to one media outlet. And in fact, uh, both The Washington Post and ABC News reported on the videos on Monday. So who gave it, even if we take him at his word, who gave it to the other media outlet? Mm, I don't know. Just putting that out there that I color me uh, dubious still about that. Prosecutors, meanwhile, argued a protective order was necessary in this case, quote, to protect witness uh, witnesses and to safeguard sensitive and confidential information. Defense attorneys for several of the defendants objected to the state's request to have a protective order order at all. They said there was no valid reason to have one. I think there is. Additionally, several attorneys for defendants who live far away objected to prosecutors' intention to not distribute the videos of interviews associated with any future, uh, future plea deals. They argued it wouldn't be convenient for their clients 
to have to make a trip to the DA's office in Atlanta to view the videos. Okay, that's a reasonable argument. McAfee, however, seemed inclined to issue a protective order of some sort, citing an interest in keeping the jury pool, quote, as untainted as possible and in promoting the, quote, free flow of discovery. He said he doesn't take First Amendment protections lightly and pointed out that pretrial proceedings are fully open to the public and news media and any trial will be as well. But he said he thinks pretrial discovery is a, quote, different realm. A ruling in that matter from Judge McAfee is expected pretty much at any time now. But he did indicate during his own remarks that he was likely to put a uh, protective order of some sort in place. Uh, the court has the power to control in the furtherance of justice, the conduct of its officers. And I combine that with the need to keep the jury pool as untainted as possible, the need to keep discovery free flowing in this process so that all parties can be prepared and to prevent pretrial surprise. We've already seen what may happen if a protective order isn't put in place. And I think a protective order uh, mitigates, uh, if not protects against all those entirely. Meanwhile, sticking in Fulton County, prosecutors asked the judge also on Wednesday to jail Harrison Floyd, who was charged in the same 2020 election theft conspiracy case in Georgia because of his alleged, quote, effort to intimidate co-defendants and witnesses. According to court filings, this is the first time Fulton County D.A. Fonnie Willis has asked to revoke someone's bond in the case. But it does show, by the way, she is willing to try and do so if necessary. Hint, hint, Mr. Trump. Prosecutors highlighted Floyd's recent social media posts about Georgia election officials who are likely to be called as witnesses in the case as well as his recent comments on a right-wing podcast about Jenna Ellis, who pleaded guilty and agreed to cooperate. Quote, the defendant's actions demonstrate that he poses a significant threat of intimidating witnesses and otherwise obstructing the administration of justice in the future, making him ineligible for bond. That, according to prosecutors, Floyd is the leader of the Black Voices for Trump group, He pleaded not guilty to three state felonies in this case, largely tied to his role in an intimidation campaign that targeted two Atlanta election workers, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shea Moss, in late 2020. Uh, Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani and other allies, you'll recall, falsely accused them of massive voter fraud. Floyd is the only defendant who spent time in jail in connection with this case. He was incarcerated at the Fulton County Jail for a week back in August before he finally reached a bond deal with prosecutors. Uh, They point to more than a dozen public statements by Floyd that they say violate the terms of that bond agreement. In a Tuesday post on Floyd's account on Twitter, for example, he questions why his team was accused of leaking videos of conversations between another defendant and prosecutors, invoking Freeman in his uh, in his comments, uh, who had nothing to do with any of this. So he's still uh, trying to uh, lie about Ruby Freeman and attack her just gratuitously. And by the way, another reason people may have thought that his team leaked that it was Floyd's team that leaked the proffer videos is because they said they did. Yeah, his own attorneys 
may not be the brightest bulbs in the pack. After the videos were released by ABC and Washington Post, uh, reportedly during a conference between prosecutors and defendant attorneys trying to figure out what happened, someone on the Harrison Floyd team actually said, quote, Harrison Floyd's team did it. They later clarified that that was a typo. <laughs> Apparently they meant Harrison Floyd's team did not do it. Nonetheless, uh, Floyd himself may not be the brightest bulb in the pack either. Back in May, he was charged with assault of a federal officer who was delivering a subpoena to him to testify before a D.C. grand jury. The affidavit said that Floyd threatened two FBI agents who served him with the subpoena at his Maryland apartment in February and ran after them. Floyd allegedly struck one agent chest to chest during the in uh, during the incident. And as long as we're mentioning accountability for those who lied about and or intimidated Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, they will now seek between 15 and a half million and 43 million dollars from Rudy Giuliani at their defamation trial that is slated to begin next month in D.C. in federal court. That, uh, according to their attorneys in filings this week, a federal judge has already found Giuliani liable for def uh, defamatory comments that he made about the pair in the wake of the 2020 election. The civil trial to determine damages is scheduled to begin December 11. Judge Beryl Howell, who will oversee the trial, has already leveled harsh sanctions against the former New York mayor over his failure to comply with discovery requ requests in that case, awarding Freeman and Moss more than $230,000 already. And uh, now they seek between fifteen and a half and $43 million needed uh, because of uh, Moss's loss of work and her need to secure and relocate from her home, etc., among other obligations, Giuliani faces a $1.5 million lawsuit for allegedly failing to pay his former attorney. A former business associate in May filed a sexual harassment claim, a, a really disturbing one, against Giuliani is seeking damages. And in October, Hunter Biden sued, sued Giuliani for unspecified damages, accusing him of mishandling personal data belonging to the president's son. ABC for, uh, forgot to mention in their report, but Giuliani is also being sued by voting machine companies Dominion and Smartmatic in defamation lawsuits for more than $1 billion each. Of course, the former mayor is also facing 13 felony counts in the criminal racketeering indictment filed by Fonnie Willis in Fulton County trying to steal the 2020 election for Donald Trump. By the way, Giuliani has pleaded not guilty in that case. God love Georgia. Green News <laughs> Report is next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. I'll stop the 
final show before uh, our Thanksgiving break, yep. and uh, I'm still running later than <laughs> anyone possibly should. I'll never learn. Let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. Climate is changing faster than any time in human history. It is not about saving the planet. It is about saving us, us humans and many of the other living things that share this planet with us. U.S. is warming faster than the rest of the globe and every region is affected, Major Report warns. U.S. and China agree to work together to displace fossil fuels and tackle the climate crisis. Plus, along with this assessment, I'm announcing $6 billion in new investments to make communities across the country more resilient to climate change. Biden administration releases new funding to strengthen climate resilience across the nation. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Brandblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. There are a number of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle who still deny climate change. Is all of them a number? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen. Wow. Uh, A bunch of climate reports this week. None of them very happy. No, no, unfortunately, they are not. A handful of major climate reports dropped this week in advance of the next round of Paris climate agreement negotiations at the end of the month. Together, the reports underscore that the world is far off track from meeting targets to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from burning fossil fuels that are driving the human-caused climate crisis. The first report from the United Nations warns that national climate plans still remain insufficient to limit the global temperature rise to the 1.5 degrees Celsius aspirational target in the Paris Climate Agreement. Global emissions are predicted to drop just 2 percent below 2019 levels by 2030, not the 43 percent reduction needed to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. A different report finds that climate warming gases in the atmosphere reached record highs in 2022. But the biggest of all was the Biden administration's release of the fifth national climate assessment compiled by several federal agencies. It's an exhaustive survey of climate impacts and risks in every corner of the United States. It describes how intensifying climate change is already here already disrupting lives, the economy, and vital ecosystems, and is, quote, worsening across every region of the United States. And worse in the United States than it is pretty much everywhere else across the globe. Yes, overall, the U.S. is warming 60 percent faster than the rest of the world, and the report delves deep with an interactive atlas to zoom down to every county in the nation. No place in the U.S. is safe from climate change, extreme heat, precipitation, and flooding events are all increasing in every region, impacting water supplies, crops, local economies, and more. The rate of sea level rise is accelerating. Back-to-back climate disasters are straining communities and ecosystems and hampering economic growth. Extreme climate events now cost the U.S. on average $150 billion a year. Other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? 
But the National Climate Assessment also offers hope. It shows how communities in every state are ramping up their response to the climate crisis. And it details a broad array of tools, solutions, and transformational adaptation policies to cut emissions and harden infrastructure for resilience against climate impacts we can no longer avoid. Here's Dr. Leah Stokes, climate policy expert at UC Berkeley on CNN. We have the technologies we need. And so all we have to do is deploy them very quickly so that we can get off fossil fuels as fast as possible. Oh, that's all we have to do. Also this week, the U.S. and China, the world's two biggest greenhouse gas emitters, agreed at a meeting in California to work together to tackle global warming by ramping up renewable energy and displacing fossil fuels. It is the first time that China agreed to set its own targets to cut all of its climate warming emissions, including the powerful greenhouse gas methane. Finally, this week, President Biden released another $6 billion in new investment from the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act to help communities increase their resilience to climate impacts, modernizing the electric grid, upgrading flood controls and drought response, addressing environmental justice for frontline communities, and much more. It takes time for the investments we're making to be fully materialized, but we just have to keep at it. We need to do more and move faster. We have the tools to do it. In this administration, America will be the place where great science changes what's possible. It better change it quickly. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Now, great thanks to all of you for sticking with us over the past year. And to those of you who help us stay on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. Yes, you are. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you, Desi Doyan. Thanks to our guest today, Marilyn Marks of Coalition for Good Governance. And thanks to everyone. As you heard the man there, (laughs) we will be uh, off until after the Thanksgiving holiday. And we greatly appreciate your support all year, and especially those who stop by the donate page at bradblog.com. Drop me an email while we're gone. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. I might be on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter at the Brad Blog. Desi will definitely be there. You can find her at Green News Report. Yep. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Thank you and good luck, world. Thank you. Thank you for being.